0: Next Chapter Podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Goodfriend, executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. Jeremy Tardy is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he got his start working with the First Stage Children's Theater and where he performed in several plays, making a name for himself in the Milwaukee area. He went on to study at Oxford at the British American Drama Academy and received his BFA in drama at the Juilliard School. Now he lives in Los Angeles and is enjoying a career with a lot of film and TV credits, including Paramount Network's 68 Whiskey, HBO's Ballers, Netflix's Dear White People, The Mindy Project, 10 Days in the Valley, Castle, Kalahari, Voodoo Macbeth, War Dogs, and more. He is well on his way to a distinguished career as a stage film and television actor and it is my great pleasure to have him here with me because he is playing the title role in the play on podcast series othello jeremy tardy welcome to the bonus content series for the play on podcast series othello
0: All Right, thank you michael it's a pleasure to be with you
1: did you ever study the role before diving into the process with us
0: yes actually um I was uh, 17 when I first performed Othello. I was way too young to be, be doing it. But uh, thankfully, I had the opportunity. Uh, as you mentioned in my bio, I was working with First Stage Children's Theater in Milwaukee. And um, through their program, they had um, uh, what's called the Young Company, which was essentially, you know, a group of actors who were kind of vetted through the program and audition and things like that. And they got a group of young actors who they knew wanted to pursue acting, uh, be it through college and going into the theater world or going into film and TV. So I was one of those actors. And they really challenged us with material, from classical and even contemporary material that was definitely, you know, some of it geared towards adult actors. So at 17, I played Othello and um, it was decent, I guess, you know, but having had that experience and working on Shakespeare, you know, his texts since I was in my teen years, I had been exposed to it and really, you know, did a lot of work between then and of course doing the podcast series to really uncover even more the play, the character and, you know, a
1: lot of the other nuances going on in it. And you were born and raised in Milwaukee?
0: That's right, yeah.
1: So when did you know that that acting was going to be a thing for you? Uh, Very early.
0: Um, It's crazy because I just happened to be the kid who just knew. So I was about five, apparently, when I decided. And it was because I was fascinated as a kid. I was fascinated with the TV set, which back then... You know, it was a serious like piece of, you know, the the, the floor model, you know, three foot by like four feet um, right. or floor, floor model. So as a kid, you know, I, I was just fascinated by it. And my mom, uh, when she retells the story, says that at about five, I asked her, how do the people get inside the TV? <laughs> and she was like, well, how do you think they get inside? And so I told her, I I thought they came into our house and they crawled in and they will perform for us. And so, you know, she's laughing and uh, she explained, no, they're called actors and they're filmed in front of a camera and it's recorded and then it gets beamed into a satellite and the satellite beams it into those rabbit ear antennas. And, you know, none of that made sense, of course, to a five-year-old. I'm like, what? Um, But at that point, it was clear that that's what I wanted to. do. I wanted to be inside the TV too, and so uh, from there, it was pretty much uh, it was pretty much a done deal. She had enrolled me into an arts elementary school, uh, so by you know kindergarten, I was already studying theater. You know, as much as a five year old could be studying theater, mm-hmm. uh, but we were in acting classes. I was taking dance classes and music stuff. So since, you know, as early as I can remember, I was on the trajectory uh, very much in the theater world. We had no we had no connections to Hollywood or to the TV film industry. So theater was the only way in. And we didn't know how it ever turned out to be, you know, the film um, career that I've been blessed to have. But uh, that was the start for me. I knew I wanted to be an actor and uh, I would be happy just doing theater.
1: Did you come from a big family, a lot of siblings?
0: Yeah, I'm the oldest of four boys. Um, my mom, uh, pretty much single parent. So she she raised four of us. Um, I also have two half sisters, uh, which I'm still, you know, the oldest. So pretty big family. But growing up with my brothers, you know, uh, single mother definitely was not easy. Uh, we definitely had... We had what we needed, but we didn't always have what we wanted. And she always made sure we were, you know, clean, well-dressed, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, getting that education. So she she did a damn good job.
1: And (laughs) Are are your siblings uh, in the arts as well? I'm the only one, (laughs) Um,
0: at least in terms of actually, you know, growing into a career in the arts. We all went to the arts elementary school the same elementary school, Elm Creative Arts is called in Milwaukee, Uh, but my other brothers, they're in a different careers and they're doing their own thing.
1: Do you remember your introduction to Shakespeare? Was it through Othello?
0: So the first Shakespeare play I ever did was Romeo and Juliet. Um, I'm pretty sure prior to that, we had to read it in like freshman year or something, Mm -hmm which might have been my first exposure to it. And and frankly, that's just a bad exposure because it, in the academic context where you're just reading it, you're not hearing it or seeing it, mm-hmm. it just lends itself to just being hated. And I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably I think my sophomore year, if I'm not mistaken, that's when I got cast through that same theater company into um, Romeo and Juliet. I was Paris. And um, uh, Paris, for those who have never heard of Romeo and Juliet, is the uh, suitor to Juliet who who uh, never has his love requited by her. And so uh, that was my first time actually being involved in a Shakespeare production. I don't think I had seen Anyone before except maybe uh the Baz Luhrmann uh, Romeo Romeo Juliet movie, which I really liked, yeah, um,
1: with Leonardo DiCaprio and uh Claire Danes,
0: that's right. Um, and um, particularly I think about John Amo in that, who was
1: uh Tim John Legoizamo, yep, yeah, that's right,
0: yeah. And uh, he, he's one of my favorite actors, especially at that time, and so uh, I was I was very inspired and uh, motivated by seeing people of color in that Um, Mm. because especially back in the you're talking about the early 90s that was not common you know i also really loved the work of harold perrineau as mercutio in that movie because that was definitely the first time i had seen a black actor in such a powerful role in Shakespeare, uh, the whole Queen Mab speech, just everything he did was just wonderful. So it was very inspiring, and that pretty much gave me a bit of a uh, blueprint as to what's possible, you know, as a as a black man doing Shakespeare in such a uh, remarkable way. So um, yeah, mm-hmm. I was about maybe fourteen or fifteen.
1: Curious to know uh, what young Jeremy. You're still young, but 14-year-old Jeremy Tardy would have thought putting on headphones and listening to a podcast version, right, of of R&J or one of the others. There are, while there aren't podcast
0: versions, um, there are certainly the old record version recordings of great actors' performance in Shakespeare. I think Mm -hmm. of uh, Paul Robeson, who would have played Othello, I think of, uh, you know, some of the great actors of the the 19th and early 20th century who were on the early recordings of doing Shakespeare. And so that would have been the only uh, reference that, you know, I could have that would be comparable.
1: But now it, it, there is a young Jeremy out there, <laughs> somebody like yeah. you would have been, who can put on the headphones and hear Othello yeah yeah this podcast
0: that's that's amazing to me because in that same vein when i think about um the legacy of an actor like paul robeson um you can go listen to him do emperor jones or othello on record and uh to me this is this is in that same vein and and that to me is is just wonderful um I think about legacy a lot these days, uh especially you know the pandemic among many other things has uh made me, as I'm sure many others really reflect on my mortality uh-huh. and uh, thinking about you know the time that we have what what am I doing, you know, um mm-hmm. not just about vanity and trying to be seen and being things, but what do I leave behind? And so this really is one of those projects that makes me feel really proud that this is something that for posterity, you know, young people will be able to listen to it and uh, hopefully get inspiration from it.
1: You know, Othello is a complicated play, right? It's it's fraught with a lot of, I guess, um, landmines right emotionally culturally all of it how do you navigate all of that is, is, is there you know there are those of people out there who, who feel like this play shouldn't even be done then there are others who say you know it's actually very relevant uh uh and and it informs our time just as much as any other what are your feelings about this play the story this character and the need to tell this story today
0: yeah i i i definitely would disagree with those who think the play does not need to be told or or done uh it's a difficult play it's it's definitely not my favorite play (laughs) of shakespeare's and um you know it's painful it's it's painful to hear it's painful to see and it's certainly painful to uh do it however i think it's important for a number of reasons um obviously we understand the context uh from the the racial dynamics and the um the real subjugation of people of color historically in western context this being in Italy. And while it's changed, it has definitely taken on other nuances. Um, And so I really think that the importance of telling this story comes about when we think about the violence that's often visited on people of color, Black men of color. and that violence isn't always manifest in a way that is to kill the individual, but oftentimes to kill the reputation of, to kill the um, career of. To, to There's many ways in which you can do violence on a person, and we see that with Iago. He never physically harms Othello. Mm-hmm. The violence that he does to Othello starts with his mind, uh, and then is is manifest in Othello unraveling and, um, and himself doing violence to the woman that he loves and who he's married. So I, I think that it's relevant from the racial context, uh, but also I think it's relevant, even if you take out the racial context, jealousy. Because we we understand that uh, while um, Iago says the lines, you know, "Beware of jealousy," it is the green-eyed monster that doth mock the meat it feeds on. Well, it's it's if you ask me, I say it's jealousy that spurs Iago to do most everything that he does. Right. He talks about how upset he is that Cassio has been promoted to lieutenant. He thinks that Othello slept with his wife. (laughs) Where he gets this from, you know, only speaks to the insecure, because we know that within the the context of the play, we know that that doesn't happen. Or at Mm -hmm. least it's fair to assume, because there's never an explicit moment, yay or nay. He just assumes that it has. Mm -hmm. Um, Which if it had, it just, I I think it would be explicit. So it, it seems to me that uh, the core of Iago's rage isn't necessarily race. That perhaps, if you ask me, is like the the cherry on top. But for me, the core is the jealousy, envy that he has. Uh, frankly, I would be interested in seeing, because I think this play could still work, if you had a dark-skinned man playing Othello, and another African-American or someone of the African diaspora playing Yago, right? You still get, you still can have the racial dynamics because even among people of color, that exists. But ultimately, I think dealing with a play really at its core about jealousy and with race, that becomes a nuance that, I think sharpens that blade <laughs> mm-hmm. or or perhaps makes the um, the uh stinger sting a little bit more, but uh between the racial dynamics and the actual um the actual uh perspective or or um, sentiment of jealousy, I think that that's real, and I think that again within our world, our modern Context that's certainly relevant in terms of how we deal with people and violence that we might visit on people with our words because words can be violent. Um, we see that in certainly in the political world, how violent rhetoric is and how that spurs people into action. Um, and so that that would be why I'd say this play is still quite relevant. It's not not an easy play it's not a comfortable one nobody walks away smiling or Mm -hmm. you know happy that oh this was such a good night at the theater or such a wonderful motivating podcast that i'm listening to (laughs) Um, but i do think there are some important takeaways
1: curious to know what the process was like for you uh there were a lot of interesting things uh you know you were not in the studio with um a lot of the other cast in New York, uh, the, the gentleman playing Iago, uh, Barrett O'Brien was in Ashland, Oregon, and you were in Chicago. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on for you at that time, how you ended up, uh, recording from Chicago, um, and, and just sort of how you dealt with the emotional, (laughs) uh, weight of, of doing this role while, while also you were teaching in Chicago, as I recall
0: so i was out in illinois uh for the summer i, I was at northwestern teaching uh, acting class out there and uh which has been a great hustle especially during the strike mm. uh, so and during that time period i was very much in a pretty rigorous uh summer program um uh, summer acting program that i was uh teaching and balancing that with, of course, uh, doing the work for this podcast, what was challenging about it was obviously just, you know, being able to maintain and sustain my energy for that work. And then coming into the studio and having that energy for the, uh, process that wasn't difficult for me. It was just a matter of, you know, managing that. Um, Thankfully, I always do warm ups with my students because that's such a core part of my teaching is making sure that they have the basics to warm up and be prepared for the actual work. Just like a an athlete or a mm-hmm. dancer, their warm ups before they get to work is as important to me as an actor to warm up before I get to work. So I, you know, would do that stuff within the context of class. Um, for me, it really is. It really well t- two things number one, I had never done a podcast series like this before I'd done interviews, but I had never played a character within the context of a podcast and so I needed to research other examples and so that was very much part of my process in terms of you know finding the character's voice and and playing within that world. And so I listened to a few things. I listened to actually one of the other uh play on podcast series, which was King Lear, Keith David as King Lear. Mm-hmm. King Lear is actually one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. That and uh, Hamlet, those are my two favorites. And so uh listening to him as Lear was, it, it was some, good research for me because obviously it allowed me to see something that the production had done prior, but also to see such a talented, or I should say here, such a talented and established and well-respected actor voice a very difficult character. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to kind of hear the arc of his journey within his voice and the subtleties and nuances and how dynamic he was. Uh, and I've worked with Keith before. He's a great, great person, uh, wonderful actor. And so it was really a pleasure hearing hearing him voice King Lear. So with that uh, research and, and listening to it, I also just really needed to do the work of um, getting a specific understanding of who Othello is where he comes from what his own kind of um through line is and, and by that I mean like his own um uh, fundamental objectives in life you know mm-hmm. he marries he marries desdemona but there's a possibility that that aside from love which could very much be present that could also be a political Move that could also be a strategic move for him in order to help him move forward within this uh, Italian context. And so, um, working with the dramaturg, um, Martin, who was very helpful, uh, we really were able to discuss some of those historical contexts that would have affected motivated or influenced his movement his function in this world and so with that kind of work and in addition to that you know just trying to really find that place of loving this woman loving this woman to the extent that the jealousy once is planted can grow and create that madness you know that that's an emotional thing that, you know, it takes work and, you know, we had to really work through that. So that in a, you know, to to make a short story long, <laughs> that was my process.
1: And I, I definitely, I want to give um, some credit here. Like you said, there was uh, Martiki Green Rogers, who did the dramaturgy on this. It was also our, our cultural consultant on the project. And uh, is the chair of the theater department at DePaul University, right there down down the road from Northwestern, which is where you were recording. And I want to give a oh, special yeah. shout out to uh, Michael Christopher Turner, yeah, who was your oh, yes. Uh, yes. engineering assistant there. That's right, uh, it was great. And Northwestern's uh, MA in Sound Arts and Industries, and in the Virginia Wadsworth Words Center for the Performing Arts at Northwestern—they they all lended a hand and made sure you had everything you needed to to get these recordings done. Did your students get to watch you at work or hear you at work at all?
0: You know, it's interesting. Some of them did. I, I wasn't really um, telling them that I was doing this. I was just doing it. Um, but the way the studio uh, building is set up is that where, where I was recording, there's another studio adjacent that they would have a class in, some of my, my students. So they go in and out and they kind of hear me or see me doing the work and peeking in and stuff like that. Um, So eventually I told them what I was working on. But yeah, many of them did see.
1: Join Play On Premium to get merch like T-shirts, hoodies, and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes, and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights, and directors who brought it all to life. Go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to Play On Premium to support the art and the artists. When you started going through the recordings themselves, did you find it... uh, Taxing, you know what I mean. What? How? How did you? How did you manage to clear the the air? Because uh, these are so intense. The the journey for Othello is so incredibly tragic, um, and, and it's so fraught, right? I mean, physically and emotionally both. How did you kind of let it go when when we'd wrap for the day, or how did you get you know empty out as it were after these scenes?
0: honestly i think i've been doing this work for a long time now i'm i'm still relatively young but majority of my life i've been an actor and um it's very important not and i tell this to young actors too it's very important that we are able to uh, find ways to replenish ourselves. You know, we give out this energy and we, we we root ourselves in these characters and some of them are disturbed or troubling characters, in troubling circumstances. Um, so for me, it really, you know, I, I, I you know, kind of go into a meditative or meditation or prayer and, and you know, move on. Um, I try not to, stay with it too long, but to, you know, take the time I need, a few moments. And it's not like I needed to do that every day, really. It was really those days when we were working on uh, the latter part of the play, of course, with the um, actual suffocation, Uh, but also those scenes with Iago where Othello is really unraveling to the point where he's having seizures and he, he, you know, is is almost foaming at the mouth and he, he's just he's just lost control. You know, the anger, the the um, wrath and sense of betrayal has just become so, so potent for him that he can't really control it anymore. And so those days, I'm not trying to walk out of there with that and go straight to working with the actors. And, <laughs> you know, so I'll just take a few moments and, you know, for me it's it's just that simple. Um and so, you know, it, it doesn't it didn't require too much. But the the process need the process requires that. The process definitely requires that.
1: You've done so much theater, as you said, on also film and TV this working in this way where you're remote from everybody did you still feel like you were able to build rapport with barrett and and kaylee carter who plays uh desdemona
0: yeah uh and this process was very interesting in that way because as you said i was very much remote from the other actors I also wasn't aware of the process going in, how exactly it would pan out because in my head, I'm thinking, you know, traditional recording that I'm just going to be in a room by myself, reading the lines by myself, Mm -hmm. but upon really getting all of the information and then learning, Oh, we're actually going to have a zoom, uh, set up in addition to the actual, um, uh, um, voice recording platform where we're able to hear the other actors that because that became really really important in the process i can't imagine not having that especially with the intensity of this play so uh with regard to your question the rapport between myself and kaylee who plays desdemona and barrett who plays iago uh that became so much easier to do we could see each other on Zoom. Hi, how you doing today? <laughs> you know, just even if it's a small talk, there's still enough for us to be able to create some connection for those characters to be able to to really have a connection. So that was really, really great. I mean, I technology, I am you know, the pandemic as awful as it was, one of the silver linings, if if you want to call it that, um is the ability to really utilize technologies in creative ways that allow us to do stuff like this. I I don't know if that was part of the process prior to the pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, but I certainly think that with the technology that we have, there's so many possibilities of being able to work with actors wherever. And so that was great. I mean, I, I didn't know how it was going to work early on because of schedule and all of that stuff. I didn't know, as you know, I didn't know if I'd even be able to do it because of schedule. so I'm so grateful that it worked out. And um, and and I can't imagine any other, you know, way that it would have worked if not being able to hear those other actors and feeding off of each other. Because that's right. that's that's what we do in theater, you know? And that's what you do as an actor. You respond, you react. And so that was very important.
1: Have you had a chance to listen to the episodes that have been published?
0: Yes, I have. I am caught up. Um, And I'm very pleased with with the work. I didn't know what to expect. I I certainly knew within the time that we were in production that the production quality was going to be good. I could see that. Based on uh, Sada, the sound engineer, and seeing.
1: His Yogi, right.
0: Yeah. So, and I, I had known about his work and on other things. And so I just knew that, and of course, Victor, who was the yep. director of the project, who also. Victor
1: Ma'ak. Yep.
0: Yeah. So I knew that there was going to be a certain level of quality just by association with these uh, wonderful. Uh, creatives, but I still didn't know what it would sound like. Uh, and that was also very much part of my process, too, is like, how do you express only with the voice? You don't get to use your body to to help convey this story to the, the people on the other end. And so hearing it and hearing all of the um, other sounds that help create the world, whether it's the wind or... Uh, laughing or dogs barking or whatever that really help immerse the listener into this world. That's what I really like about it. I mean the, the, I think the actors everybody's doing such a great job, but that other element it almost is it almost brings us into it almost like 3D but just with sound right that extra dimension of atmosphere. And you don't hear that, of course, in the recording sessions, but to hear it and and, and know that that's placed in and that our voices are layered into that, it, it's really it's really great to listen to. So every week I'm like waiting for midnight because I, I want to <laughs> hear it uh, just to hear how it sounds.
1: That's um, Lindsay Jones, our sound designer and composer, who it's so interesting because Lindsay's work in creating those atmospherics, is so essential to the podcast and, and all the episodes, of course, but none of the cast ever really meets Lindsay <laughs> or whoever the the sound designer happens to be or the composer. Usually it's Lindsay. He's been doing most of ours, uh, but he does just phenomenal work. And I, I also want to acknowledge Catherine Neaton, who does the adaptation. She adapted Mphoeniso's remarkable translation and uh, she intuitively kind of points sound designers towards, hey, you know, uh, she she comes up with a lot of this stuff like the dog barks and, the, you know, she uses animal imagery a lot in her adaptations just because it really does kind of land a listener into a place so effectively. The sound of weather, the sound of, uh, you know, those those things that we take for granted when we walk through our daily lives. We don't realize how much sound contributes to the world we're in. So you've done... You've done all this TV uh, uh, and film which series kind of made the difference for you in terms of you or did you feel it a, a change in in your trajectory and you were like, okay, I'm gonna make the move to l a or uh, or I feel like my career has kind of entered a new realm
0: good question I well, prior to moving to L.A., I moved to L.A. in 2014. So I graduated from college 2013 and just didn't have any money to get to L.A. I would have moved the day after graduation if mm-hmm. I could afford it. Uh, but I moved here in 2014. Prior to me moving, I had done uh, a couple plays off Broadway, but I hadn't yet had any experience on TV. um, And had done maybe one short film before then. So... Um, fast forward from 2013 to July of 2014, I moved to LA and I didn't have a place. I was just staying with my friend on her couch or sleeping in the back seat of my car. Sometimes, you know, the, 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 the story that I'm sure you've heard before about many actors who come to LA, you know, just figuring it out. Um, But by, I think, November of that year, I want to say, uh, um, I had booked my first show, the mini project I was on. So almost, I wouldn't say immediately, but within a few months of me being in LA, I was starting to book work. And and so that was very affirming, of course. Like, oh, this was definitely the right move because this is what I want to be doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but in terms of the project that really, I think for me, it was uh, sixty-eight whiskey, which behind me mean, you can see the poster for it. Um, that's like my master's degree up on the wall right there, oh, and I God. say that because um, uh, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard uh, were executive producers on it. Huge budget, huge production. You know the the, the crew with upwards of fifty people on set every day. Um, it, it's based on the 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 show is based in Afghanistan. Uh, 68 Whiskey is the uh, military um, code word or code name for a combat medic. And so we were on a set that was built out as a military base. And there's Humvees and we're flying helicopters. And it all sounds lovely. It sounds like a great gig. And it was. Um, However, it was it was work. You know, yeah. we weren't showing up to a studio and having coffee and chilling until what they call a name like we're in the desert. We're actually in the desert. We, we've got scenes where we're running back and forth and jumping out of the helicopter, running the Humvee, um, uh, live fire, you know, all kinds of different stuff happening. So it was it requires such stamina and such a work ethic of like, you have to really be on 10 every day. And I'm, you know, getting maybe five, six hours of sleep before I have to get up and drive back to set. You know, we, we'd have to have our 12 hours, of course. But by the time you get home, by the time you get settled and actually fall asleep, you probably get five, six hours of sleep. So, you know, that was six months. Round the clock. And by the time we had done, it was 10 episodes. By the time we were done, man, I was burnt out, mm. totally burnt out and mentally and physically. Yeah. But what that meant to me, because we completed the series, thankfully. Um, in fact, we completed it all, about a month before the pandemic, um, came to America. Um, So early 2020. And what that was for me, that experience showed me, because I've always wanted to do projects in the action genre, was that not only does it require a serious level of stamina and work ethic, but I actually rose to the occasion and was able to deliver.
1: Hmm.
0: And being able to do that, you know, it set the bar for me in terms of my own work ethic and, and what I'm able to do think they want to do that kind of work, but it's difficult, grueling work. Um, And so that would have been the project uh, for me to answer your question.
1: You were in Dear White People.
0: That's right. Yes, I was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What was that experience like for you?
0: Uh, Well, the experience is bittersweet for me. Uh, So I'll start with the sweet. I was very, very pleased to be cast in that role. I played a character named Rashid, who's from Kenya. Uh, So he's a foreign exchange student at this college. And I was in it from the very first episode. Um, I was a recurring guest star on the show. Great cast, loved working with the actors. Um, And that was the first and only time I've been on a set where I saw so many people of color not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera, crewed up in pretty much every department. And I loved that. I just love seeing that representation and knowing that the work that we're doing um, in terms of um, the opportunity, the opportunity is there for lots of people of color behind the camera and below the line. So that was great. behind the scenes as we uh gotten through the seasons I did 3 seasons on the show and when we, by the time we got to negotiate in the fourth season it just fell apart the studio um was just it, it, uh, in brief it just became clear there were some um um there was some issues that uh, became present and were inappropriate in order for me to choose to continue working on that show. So I left the show. I'm still cool with the actors on the show, um, but I chose not to to move forward with that show uh, for the fourth and final season.
1: What can you talk about in terms of the decision to leave? Do you just want to leave it there and just say that was your, just your choice?
0: To go back to the point about uh, how relevant Othello is with regard to the racial component, um, race is still very present in the entertainment industry in regards to decision-making, particularly with regard to paying people of color. And I think, uh, it's clear, at least for many people that in many industries, people of color oftentimes don't get paid as much as their white counterparts, white colleagues. And that was the case on that show. And when it became clear and it wasn't clear because of speculation or conjecture. We, we actually were in uh, collective bargaining as a as a cast. And so with that, and I'm sure many people may have heard, like after the third season, usually the cast, if it's a successful show, will begin collective bargaining to try to get paid a little bit more and also to try to um, make sure that certain other aspects of the production are um pushed particularly with that uh marketing and and really trying to push forward the show as uh at that time netflix is really only show that was a a, a cast of uh, people of color at that time because orange is the new black had already ended by this time mm-hmm. um, and i know that was very very big deal for netflix uh um prior but anyway it came what it came down to is that i learned that um the white actors were getting paid more than the black actors were for literally similar uh work similar um, roles in terms of billing and, and so on and so forth and it wasn't um it was a pretty transparent thing because I had the conversation with those white actors who are allies, who I love and I'm still friends with. It wasn't like there was contention between us. It just became clear, oh, there's difference in terms of uh, treatment and pay. And obviously with the show being called what it's called and, and when it pro- to address those issues, it's not just about what the um principles are what we profess we have to we have to make sure that runs down all the way down to those checks you know what i mean mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so uh because that's ultimately one of the things that affects whether and we're seeing that now within the strike that affects whether actors are able to make the threshold to get the health insurance mm-hmm. to get pension right? Th- certain benefits are associated with what actors get paid. It's not just about the short-term being able to pay bills. This is about long-term um, um economic empowerment. And if we're not mm-hmm. actually getting that on a show that says that, you know, that's what it's about, that's highly problematic. And so because of that, I was, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I, I can't, I can't. They There was a uh, situation of like best and final offer. They didn't want to negotiate but they did negotiate with the with the white actors. So I'm like nope huh. nah, I'll leave it. And so I left it.
1: Did you pay a price for that? Obviously you lost the work but was there oh, yeah. blowback on you? Did you become a problem in the eyes of the industry?
0: Well first of all I did leave money on the table. So there's a sacrifice there. You know hmm. and I think First and foremost, for for those who may be listening or may come upon this podcast interview, it's important to know that when your morals are really challenged, when your principles are really challenged and it requires a sacrifice, that's when you really know who you are and if you actually live by those morals and principles. It's one thing to talk about it and to say it, yeah, I believe in X, Y, Z, but when there's money on the table, are you willing to take the money and um, compromise your integrity, compromise your morals or your principles? Or do you walk away from it? So that was, I walked away from, you know, some money. It wasn't like they weren't offering anything. <laughs> they just weren't right. offering what I believed I deserved and what I know I deserve. Mm-hmm. Um. And so that's number one. Um, Number two, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, within the context of, of Hollywood, and I think in any industry, we see that, I think, with the strikes now. I think it's just bubbled up to a point where it just had to happen. But generally, you know, producers, studios, they don't like people that rock the boat too much, you know? Mm -hmm. And with actors, oftentimes we're perceived to be disposable, replaceable, and oftentimes we believe that. And so all too many actors will be quiet, will just accept whatever it is they're given. And keep in mind, you know, you can't fight every battle, right? Or every battle has to be fought differently. You Mm -hmm. can't die on every hill, so to speak. Um, this was one for me that was worth it. But but when you think about uh, the industry, sure. I mean, maybe there are projects that I would have been seen for, auditioned for after that, that that producers like, oh, that's that guy we're not interested in working with. I don't know that. I don't have any information to explicitly know I didn't get this because of this. Um, but I'm sure that's there. But in, on the other end of that, there's a lot of other people who reached out and expressed their respect and support for that. Cause I wasn't doing that just for myself. I mean, there were other actors even on that project that were experiencing the same thing I was experiencing, but they did what they felt they needed to do. And I did okay. what I felt I needed to do. So it wasn't just about me, right? It's this is about making it clear who the culprits are within the industry that are still perpetrating this um, inequity with regard to paying actors equitably, but also uh, it's important that we understand if we're gonna move forward beyond this, that we have a lot of work to do.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And to give you a little more context, this was 2020 when, and this was part of why it was so egregious to me, because this was in 2020, following the George Floyd, excuse me, the George Floyd murder Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and the protests surrounding that. And at that time, if you remember, there are a lot of companies putting out statements about how they stand with people of color and how, Mm -hmm. how they support the movement. Netflix, Lionsgate, we're no different. We stand with you Negroes.
1: Right. <laughs> black blackwashing, right?
0: Yeah. And it was like, well, show me that on the chat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one thing to say that, but you got to practice that, right? And that was part of why it was so egregious. You don't get to just do that. You don't get to virtue signal. You don't get to um, make a statement to try to um, show some type of um, allyship when behind the scenes, when it comes down to the nitty gritty of daily business practices, you're engaging in business practices that are just inequitable. Um, and so that was that's why I felt the need that, that I had to say something. I wasn't just going to quit. I was going to let it be known why I quit. Right.
1: So you you came out publicly about the reason why?
0: Yes, yes. There's lots of articles that were done. Uh, I was working with my publicist and my attorney. Um, we released a statement on Twitter, uh, or was formerly known as Twitter, at the time, Twitter. And um, after that, every major publication ran with it. I didn't do any interviews. Um, I just... I didn't feel the need. I mean, I thought I made it clear within the statement. And there's lots of everything from Hollywood Reporter to Variety. They they ran with it and it became a thing. I mean, on the other side of that, to answer your question, too, there's a lot of people out there that don't want to see people of color stand up. So I got a lot mm-hmm. of threatening messages as well, you know, wow. uh, through, through social media and stuff like that. Um, a lot of support. But also a lot of people that uh, you know just vile, venom, and uh, hate,
1: yeah.
0: and th- that comes with the territory. You know,
1: were you the only one that walked?
0: No, I don't think it's my place to to name the other actor who walked. But I will say, it's a white actor who hmm. also knew what was going on and was willing to collectively bargain and say, "We're all going to get." This amount, or I'm walking, and he and I were the ones that walked. Uh, we're Mm. still good friends. Uh, I haven't seen it, we we surfed together, uh, so Mm. I haven't seen him in a little while, but no, I was not the only one. But like I said, I was gonna let it be known. I think when he's comfortable, he's gonna let his story be known. Um, and perhaps he has some you know feelings about it, but but I. At that time, you know, I let it be known I moved on. Um, thankfully, I've done other projects since then, this one included. Uh, but it definitely was a very deeply disappointing and disheartening experience. I would have probably seen that coming on any other show but that show,
1: (laughs) yeah, right, right. Why didn't I? I mean, so ironic, especially like you say, with even the just down to the title (laughs) of the series, you know. that's that's an amazing story. A really great testament to your character. To uh, uh, I, I mean, look, full disclosure. I don't know if I would be able to do it, right? I mean, you know, you don't know until you're faced with the right. the moment of truth. But yeah. um, you the know, I, is
0: when that money's on the table,
1: man. right? You right? <laughs> know, I mean, like oh, I got miles to feed. I've got yeah. you know bills to pay. Um, I mean, it takes an incredible amount of courage. You, you you're right. We all talk a good game, but. Putting putting your actions behind your words is really what what separates uh, you know uh, uh, people who are all talk from people who actually get get things done.
0: Absolutely.
1: Just before we wrap up, I, I want to get back to Othello and the podcast series. What is it that you feel is the the if you could distill it down to what one or two things you want people to take away from listening to this series, what would those things or thing
0: be? I suppose the first thing would be trust. Because ultimately Othello's tragic flaw is he trusted the wrong motherfucker. Be careful who you trust. Be careful who you listen to because you never truly know a person unless you know a person. And um, we obviously see that uh, Iago is quite masterful in his duplicity and his ability to show one face to Othello as a friend, as a... um, almost even like a brother, but we know the whole time from the very first moment to the very last, he hates Othello. And so the takeaway for me, especially as a Black man, but I think this is for anybody. I don't think you have to be a Black or a man. <clears throat> you have to be careful who you trust and who you spend your time with. Uh, There's an old saying I used to hear or I heard in church years ago, everybody that's in your corner is kind. Everybody that's in your corner, everybody that's with you isn't necessarily really with you. And so that's really important. Um, That will be the first takeaway. Um, Obviously, there's the element of domestic violence here. And that was the most challenging thing for me is to to, uh, voice that section of the play. Um, Othello hits Desdemona at one point in the latter part of the play. Hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but the point though about domestic violence is that um, it's obviously deeply troubling. And I think, one of the takeaways here is that the union, uh, I'll actually be uh, having my wedding ceremony and and reception October, the end of October.
1: Congratulations.
0: And uh, thank you. That union is is a sacred union. That's why you take vows and uh, you take vows before God. And one really must be careful who we let get in between at you. It's interesting because when I read the play and I had this conversation with Martin, there's never a moment after after Othello is convinced that Desdemona has cheated on him or that she's been, you know, unfaithful, that there's been infidelity. There's never a moment where he just asks her.
1: <laughs> right
0: there's there's these missed opportunities of did you you know just being completely frank and transparent did you xyz um he's convinced because he's been played by yago with the handkerchief and other things so that by the time he actually does ask her he's too far beyond being able to believe her right He's too convinced, but based on what he's seen. So, you know, I, 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 I had an acting teacher years ago. I'll just share this little uh, quick thing. Acting teacher years ago, who um, shared with me because I, with my early college years, I, you know, I hadn't smoothed out some of my rough edges yet. So, uh, in a rehearsal, I just got very upset with some of the other actors and certain things that were going on. And I had just kind of pent it all up. And, you know, it was just kind of like a, a matter of the last uh the, the camel that broke the straw, or the, the not the camel that broke the straw, the straw that broke the camel's back. You know what
1: I mean? Right, 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 right.
0: Uh, and so I uh I lost my temper within the context of um this rehearsal because I just it was just a lot of stuff that was inappropriate going on. Uh, my teacher said to me, he said, you know. You don't get to the point where you know you like the kettle with the lid popping off early on, nip things in the bud when you can by communicating. That was an important lesson for me. Um, and this was a missed opportunity for Othello. So clearly, I, I can understand that. But lastly, you know, the takeaway is walk away, bruh. <laughs> if she was cheating on you, walk away. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It ain't worth it, you know, because all too many instances you can see within the news of infidelities that end in um, physical violence or even the death of a person. And I just don't think it's worth it. Um, number one, it's not worth it to your own soul and it's not all worth it to your own freedom to do that. However pained or however betrayed or however hurt you may be. Just walk away. If that's what you got to do, walk away rather than engage in the violence. So those will be the takeaways.
1: Those are some really, really great takeaways. Everybody that's in your corner isn't your kind.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that clearly is the case for Iago Othello. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, Rings true also with your experience in Hollywood, right? The more oh, yeah. uh, clout you get <laughs> as an actor, the more people kind of linger around you, the more people try to, you know, we see with rock stars, with movie stars, you know, they're they're there's bound to be in a yago somewhere lurking in those corners.
0: Absolutely. Um, and they take all different forms. they could yeah. be agents they could be you know uh, they, they could be anybody and so it's just my best advice is to uh, be careful who you trust you know that's not saying don't trust people um but trust should be earned not assumed
1: great great uh things to leave us with jeremy Tardy what a what a great conversation i'm so so glad that you We're part of this series, and you agreed to do it. We had such a a, a terrific phone call way early on when we talked about doing this, and uh, boy, did you deliver. Just an amazing, amazing, beautiful, beautiful performance. We're all really, really lucky to get to hear it. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you. I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity. I'm glad it worked.
1: You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcast at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcast.com. That's N is in next, C is in chapter, podcast with an S at the end, dot com, where you can find other Play On Podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like The 500, The 10, Beef with Bridget Todd, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcast. And my producer, Pete Musto. Our audio engineer, editor, and sound designer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. It really does make a difference. I'm Michael Goodfriend. I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts.